Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. From Backwoods Church in Arkansas to the disappeared town of St. Thomas, buried beneath the waters of Lake Mead, award-winning essayist Phyllis Barber travels roads both internal and external, reflecting upon place and perspective, ambition and loss in her new book, The Precarious Walk. As a child growing up in the Mojave Desert, she witnesses the massive power of the Hoover Dam and the fiery rip in the sky from the Nevada test site. As an adult, she searches for meaning through music, movement, and human connection, examining her Mormon upbringing and profound ways people and landscape impact one another and the sudden loss of her first child. Uh, Phyllis Barber will be um, partnering with Tory House Press uh, for the Precarious uh, Walk book launch. A couple of events uh, tomorrow evening, uh, Tuesday, May 24th, 6 p.m., King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. And Thursday, June 2nd, 7.30 p.m., the Book Bungalow in St. George. A couple of opportunities to see and uh, interact with uh, Phyllis Barber. Phyllis Barber, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Um, so uh, I want to, so the, from the very last uh, essay here, let me, uh, I want to read this here. You say it's useful to know why you've become the person standing in your shoes and ask what and who you are. I think this is um, uh, at least some of what you're doing with the with these essays, correct? Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. Uh, and I believe that I, I wanted to encourage other people to do the same thing. Yes. Um, <clears throat> what is it that happens? Do you think that uh, you know a lot of us don't do that? What happens when you when you do that? Do that examination. Well, one thing that happens is you find that it's not quite the same as you as the story you've created around it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, it's much more complicated and complex than, than we could imagine, but uh, it's good to re-examine the stories we tell about ourselves. Uh, and then uh, I think you've written that something you know, happens, but you, you kind of, uh, you make discoveries, including about your, I guess, your own self when you write about Definitely. yourself. Definitely. And it's kind of a surprise. It's like uh, you may not be the same person you once thought. <laughs> yeah. I want. Do you have your book with you? I do. Um, I wonder if you could read uh, just maybe just from, from the very beginning the the first essay. Oh, say can you see? Um, it kind of sets the scene here in um, uh, Boulder City. Uh, maybe the the first page and then over, including the first full paragraph on the next page. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. My morning voice. Mm-hmm. Oh, say can you see? Over the radio microphone into the nation's and FDR's ears, my grandma sang the star-spangled banner. Oh, say, can you see, she sang, the woman who ironed for nickels and dimes. Everybody in Boulder City, Nevada, recommended her for the dam's dedication program. They'd heard her sing at funerals, beautifully enough to make them cry even more than they might have. What so proudly we hail. A big black open car full of VIPs delivered her home from the ceremony. She probably waved goodbye longer than those men expected, as if it were the last time she'd be waving goodbye. Her hand pausing in the air, both wanting to push the car along and wanting to keep it close to her. I can see her there, maybe because I somehow feel connected to that woman and her difficult life, dressed in her Sunday dress, most likely black cotton, with low, broad-heeled shoes. She must have sung by the memorial in between those stylized statues, massively chested men wearing tall, stiff wings pointing skyward. 
Her notes must have hovered high above the Colorado from where she stood on top of Hoover Dam, now diverting water to be used for the benefit of humankind. I hope those 96 men who died building the dam were given fluffier wings by the purveyor of angel equipment. Those brown wings wouldn't lift anybody anywhere. <clears throat> I remember that dam and the stories about Grandma, but there was something else about growing up in the Mojave Desert that will never leave a mind. A rip in the sky, a test, a gash that showed the sky's insides for a minute. I thought about my Band-Aid box when I saw it. A funny thing to think about then, but I did. I could never have unwrapped enough Band-Aids to patch the desert, even if I'd pulled the red string exactly down the side crease without tearing into that flat side of the paper where the red letters are printed. After that first fire-in-the-blank sky passed, the heaven's blood and the earth's dust made a big cloud, a busy one that drifts over my mind more often than I'd like. So we have the the dam and the resulting Lake Mead. We have the you know the Nevada test site there as as well. I love that uh, I guess that metaphor. You, you can never unwrap enough band aids to patch the desert. <laughs> yeah. uh, the desert is always a big and enigmatic thing, enigmatic place to me. I loved it, and I, and it was very alien too. Yeah, I think your dad uh, took. This was not uncommon. Your dad, um, you know, took you to witness, um, you know, at least one test. Right. Well, in Boulder City, Nevada, there was a a small rim of mountains before you would go into Las Vegas or Henderson, and uh, so we stood behind that mountain, and the uh, uh, the clouds and all that went were blown eastward, so we were supposedly safe, but it seems strange that uh, our father would take us to see it, but he was very excited about what was happening. Then he said something, you know, it resonates, uh, you know, logical at the time, he said, we're referring to America, now now we're safe, you know, nobody can ever touch us or something like that. Right. That's how my father felt, and he was very, very proud of that uh, Bomb. And I, I, I mean, as a child, all you can do is listen and watch and learn <laughs> yeah. from what your parents say. Uh, maybe have you talk a little bit about your parents. You, you say your your mother, uh, your mother grew up in Idaho. Um, yes. Solid farm folks. Um, Definitely. And you say this something interesting. You say, and she she met this kind of this drifting uh, man. Your father ended up in the desert, but you say something in her uh, never moved there. Right. I think she always was a, an Idaho girl and um, really loved that solidity much more than she loved the Nevada craziness <laughs> uh, and the blowing wind and all the dust. Although Las Vegas is a different place now than it was then, so it's much more civilized than it was at the time. And she, I guess she would say periodically, uh, hey, uh, l- let's move. Why, <laughs> why are we out here in the <laughs> desert, right? Right, and I always felt her logging, even if she didn't say very much. But I think over the years she finally accepted the fact she was there and made the best of it. But for for about 10, 15 years, I think she wanted to go back to Idaho. Mm-hmm. You write about your, you, you take trips back to Idaho to visit the relatives, right? It's, it's such a different world, a different different culture. I mean, same, Definitely. Re- same religion, but different, uh, really different cultures. Definitely a different culture. <clears throat> it took me a lot of years to figure that out, that we have, I mean, 
Las Vegas has its own culture, and uh, you you think your own culture is the only one, and uh, when you're growing, when you get older, you go, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not quite right. Uh, tell us about your dad. You, you're right. He he he. Belo- contrast to your mom. He belonged to the desert. Right. Oh, you're right. Uh, they they lived in Ely, Nevada, and uh, crisscrossed the desert all the time. And they lived in Boulder City, and they lived in um, parts of Idaho, the southern Idaho. And um, his father was always looking for a job, and he would would only stay with a job for about six months, if that long. And uh, so the family was continually moved about and and uh my father was was not a rough and ready type of guy and I think his father wanted more of that from him and he didn't have it to give so it created a a bit of a conflict between them mm. uh wh- what was life like there in Boulder City this was, it, it, you say later on I want to have you talk about Las Vegas different kind of desert but uh what was life like there in Boulder City well, Boulder City was a government town which was built to build the Hoover Dam. And um, for a long time, there were guards at the gate. You couldn't get in. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you had to go past the guards to get in. And if you'd been drinking or anything like that, they wouldn't allow you in because they didn't want to uh, jeopardize the situation at, of the building of the dam. So after the dam was finished, the Boulder City remained a federal reservation until, I think, the 50s when it uh, was made an independent town, but it never did uh, develop the same culture as Las Vegas. There was uh, a 3.2 beer salon or something like mm-hmm. that, and that was the extent of it. Uh, it never got any more than that. I, you know, it, it was a very ordered town, and uh, as, I, as I said earlier, it was a government town, so a lot of the people who helped build the dam stayed there, and... Uh, made a, well, they needed people to run the dam, so they kept those people there. So anyway, but uh, I, when moving to Las Vegas was truly different. <clears throat> uh, before we get there, you you write about a, a trip to the dam. I guess you're taking a tour. You wander off, and you're <laughs> the, the, the tour guide uh, gets after you. Uh, but your, just your description of, uh, you know, peering over, over the dam. I think your uncle even kind of dangles you. Um, right over, I had vertigo reading that. It was, <laughs> uh, you know, scary. <laughs> well, my my uncle worked there, so he wasn't afraid of it, but it scared me to death. <laughs> it's a very big, big, tall dam. Uh, and then you know, people would talk about because there's a bit of a slope, right? It's not completely you know ninety degrees. Right. Uh, you talk about well, you can maybe slide down there. Of course, you know, you die. In fact, you you write about one one guy committed suicide off the off the dam. Yeah, that's the only one I ever heard of. Um, and uh, you write, what, 96 people died constructing the dam. Right, and a lot of, there are a lot of stories about that the men were buried in the dam and left in the cement, but that is not true. Um, the dam was built in forms, and, and the concrete was about three feet deep, or else it never would have dried. So uh, if somebody fell, in, which they did, and fell into the concrete, they were able to get them out. Uh, and so you, you contrast this to Las Vegas, where you moved. Uh, I'm not sure how old you, you were when you moved. About eleven. About eleven. Um, there was there was order in Boulder City, right? You, you felt kind of safe. It was a very structured government town. Right, and then the um, 
the elementary school was excellent, and a lot of the teachers there had been hired during the building of the Hoover Dam, and which was also during the Depression. <clears throat> um, so we we just had excellent teachers, and uh, I mean it was a, a really. I'm, I'm so glad I was able to grow up there, or not grow all the way up, but grow partly the way up. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would, uh, I guess, you'd go. Would you go out, go out in the desert, at least the edges of, of town, that kind of thing? Oh, definitely. And I would ride my bike out there sometimes. And um, sometimes you'd see snakes, sometimes you wouldn't, but you'd see a lot of horned toads and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I was always so curious about the desert and what it, what was out there. Mm. Um, so then uh, you moved to Las Vegas. You're 11 years old. I wanted to just read this sentence. Landing there, talking about Las Vegas, felt like being shot onto the barren surface of the moon. It was too hot, <laughs> inhospitable, a harsh place. Tell me about Las Vegas uh, circa 1954. Well, when we arrived there, um, we were truly on the edge of the desert. Um, right across the street from our house was sheer desert, although it's been way built up since that time. But um, so... It felt like we were moving to the very edge of the desert and to the wind, and the wind blew terribly, um, which is, I guess, not quite so bad now because of the dust has all been made into homes, etc. But um, I remember walking to school and the wind blowing, and I, I just thought it was a very inhospitable place. So that's uh, how it felt after Boulder City. Yeah. Um, you said the houses were kind of flimsy, at least at that point, as well. Yes, yeah. They built, there were no basements, and I guess I'm uh, used to Idaho and Utah, where everybody has a basement. <laughs> but there was nothing like that in the desert. Uh, what was the culture like? You were you were kind of on the edge of town. Did you guys go to the—what was the Las Vegas Strip like at that time? Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of the Las Vegas Strip at the time. Uh, Howard Hughes— came in 1965, and I graduated from high school in 61. So that's when things began to change, when he arrived in town. And um, I guess some of the mafia was there earlier, and there were some a few hotels, like I can't remember, the Desert Inn and the Flamingo, I think. But um, it just really expanded after 65. And uh, you write that you this was... You know, hopefully going to be a you know kind of a step up for for your dad. You can be able to bring in more money, uh, insurance salesman, right? But it it didn't really work out that way. No, it didn't. There were uh, some quite aggressive salesmen at the, in Las Vegas, and my dad just wasn't an aggressive kind of guy. He was he was wonderful in his own way, but he should never have been an insurance salesman. And the other people were, like I say, more aggressive than other salesmen. And uh, gradually, my dad kind of faded away. It was a, I was able to witness that because I was a teenager at the time. And uh, anyway, it was it was kind of a sad tale because he had been a very strong man and a well-known man in Boulder City. And then Las Vegas, he kind of disappeared. Mm. <laughs> he wanted to be a, a writer, didn't he? He did want to be a writer, and he should have been. He's a very creative kind of guy, but, you know, he had to support a family, and so that was air in the air. In the air. <laughs> yeah. Was was he able to witness you becoming a writer? Um, he did. He did a little bit, but um, 
He's been gone about 25 years now. Yeah, I think about well, 22 years. But um, And he was not well for the last 10 years, so he didn't get to see a lot of what I did. But he knew that I was writing. So um, that was some uh, consolation to him. Now you write that, uh, of course, you're a teenager here in uh, in Las Vegas. It's you know At least when you first came, it was like being shot under the barren surface of the moon, you write. Uh, but you say you had a determination, I would matter here somehow. And 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 you did make it. You became a Las Vegas rhythmet. Oh, that's big, big time stuff. <laughs> uh, the rhythmets were actually on the Ed Sullivan show, which some of the listeners will uh, remember and some will not. But it was a big um, kind of uh, what do you call it? Uh, show that everybody wanted to be on a talent show, and uh, the Beatles were on it, and um, Elvis Presley, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but the Las Vegas Rhythmettes actually performed on the Ed Sullivan show the year before I got in, and um, it was a really big time thing to be a, to make the Rhythmettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if I could have you read another uh, passage here, uh, page two hundred eighteen. This is from the near the, well, the very end of the book here. Two. Uh, two hundred eighteen. Okay. Uh, starting with that first full paragraph, the desert is subtle. <coughs> to the end? Uh, yeah, maybe to the end. Yeah, raises some interesting points. Maybe we can talk about it after you read it. Okay. The desert is subtle. It lies behind the facade of what men have tried to build. It tries to send people away with its bitter wind and searing sun, but it has taught me to find my way through, to accept me whether or not I'm beige, the color of sand, if that's what I am quiet, reserved. I'm a creature who has found a way to live in the midst of challenges. My response is not easy to track. I could be the desert itself. It's true that we are all part of other places we've lived. In my case, the Bay Area of California, Salt Lake City and Park City, Utah, Denver, Colorado, Rochester, Minnesota, and the many places I've traveled, Arkansas, South Carolina, Tibet, India, Iceland, Spain, England, Ecuador, etc. But a large part of who I am will always be a metaphor, a piece of sand warmed by the sun. How I love to be warmed by the sun, especially when it doesn't burn too hot. Though it took years to come to peace with my childhood and put my geography in perspective, even while Las Vegas became different from what I'd known, I've discovered that it doesn't matter whether or not I'm a high flyer among all those people who came to Clark County to escape or find a new life. I don't have to be a showgirl or drive a pink Cadillac. I know how to find shade in the holes that keep me out of the heat, and I'll always be a creature of sand and sun. That's what those scars on my thighs tell me, the ones where I once lost the mass of what covered me, my skin lost to that unholy yet holy landscape. All of us are from a specific geography, captured in an indelible memories, sights, smells, and sounds. It's useful to know why you've become the person standing in your shoes and to ask what and who you are. There could be a desert, a rise of mountains, the flatness of plains, or the swell of ocean in your history, the smells, the angles of light, the grass or no grass, snow or too much sun. Maybe you were surrounded by water or by sand, maybe green fields. Unwind it, understand it. Tell your story, as I've told mine in so many ways. At least tell this story to yourself. Tell of the places where you wander in your thoughts, 
even if you're not aware you're wandering. Uh, that's we talked about that a little earlier, right? Uh, Yes. T- tell the story to yourself. Tell the places where you wander in your thoughts. Um, I want to talk about um, this. The, the subtitle gets into this essays from Sand and Sky because the book is the Precarious Walk. Um, what what is it about the West, about the desert that that you respond to so much and that, that has formed you? You say. Well, I just think um, it surrounded me uh, when I was growing up, and it was kind of like the desert was always out there. There'd be a little bit of civilization, but there would always be a big desert and big stretches of sand and a huge sky, uh, and it was blue, too blue uh, some of the time. Uh, but it was kind of like that became my soul It was because uh, it, it was so much. I, I really think we're affected by our environment and, and more than we realize. So um, that's why in the desert always, I even go back there now, and I love to be in um, Lake Mead National Park, I think it's called. But it, they've kept it all pristine and all really deserty, and I, I love it. it. It speaks to me. You said that uh, being in the West, uh, we, we have a sense of ease with space and wide openness. I think so, and I, I don't know how long that will continue or if it is the same for everyone now, but, uh, yeah, driving even to Idaho every summer as we did, there would always be great stretches of nothing, of nothing but uh, the landscape, and, and uh, it always felt like little towns were here and there, but it was like that was man's effort. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I always related to the big space. What do you think that does to us here in the world? All that wide open space, you know, big sky. Um, yeah, it kind of, it seems like endless space sometimes. Well, I taught back at Vermont College in, in Montpelier, Vermont, and there were so many trees. And it was like, this feels a slightly bit claustrophobic because I'm used to, you know, not having this, not having so much green. I think what it does to a person is it makes a person... Uh, well, it made me feel very independent, uh, like there was a lot of room to be other than what you were supposed to be or what somebody told you you should be. So um, I, I think the desert is rather a remarkable place. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's uh, time for a break. Let's take a little break here, and we'll be back with Phyllis Barber. Her, her new uh, collection, essay collection, is The Precarious Walk. The subtitle is Essays from Sand and Sky. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, we're joined uh, for the hour by uh, writer uh, Phyllis Barber. Her new collection of essays is The Precarious Walk, Essays from Sand and Sky. It's out from Tory House Press. And uh, there are a couple of book launch events for The Precarious Walk. Uh, the first is tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, 6 p.m., at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. And the second is Thursday, June 2nd, 7.30 p.m., at the Book Bungalow in St. George. And uh, you're welcome to attend uh, either of those events. The book is is out and available. Uh, so, Phyllis Barber, before we get uh, jump into uh, more of the essays here, I was reading on your website, uh, by the way, phyllisbarber.squarespace.com, you have a list of favorite books. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, I agree with uh, all, your, all your picks here. One uh, stood out. Um, I have trouble articulating why this is so good. You, you list uh, housekeeping. 
from Marilyn mm. Robinson. Now, I wonder if you could <laughs> maybe do a better job than I can. I, I tell people, I try to tell people how, how good this book is, but uh, you've listed on your on your best books. What uh, What is it about this book? Well, that was the first time I had read Marilyn Robinson, and she, I guess, has published quite a few books since then. But I haven't liked any of them as well. I like that first one, Housekeeping. And I, I, I mean, they're all good, but <laughs> that one was especially good. And it talked about... Um, really not being able to keep a house, to keep it, not to clean it. But um, I thought, I mean, maybe it's partially because I grew up in the desert, but it was like those houses would be, they would deteriorate after a time and they would be gone. And if if somebody's not there keeping it up and paying attention to it, it, it goes. It goes with the wind and the sun. So um, I just really was attracted to that premise and to the way she writes, I think she wrote that book beautifully. Mm. Uh, you've also listed Gabriel Garcia Marquez's uh, classic 100 Years of Solitude. There, there's some others here as well. Um, you, uh, you've listed uh, Flannery O'Connor as a, as a literary, I guess, an influence. Uh, tell me about that. Well, I just think she's a wonderful storyteller, and she's, uh, she was very Catholic, I believe. And um, so she was always writing... Uh, in response to, to some of that uh, that she garnered from her Catholic upbringing. And, and uh, I guess I related to that because I was raised very strictly uh, in a religious context. And um, I just, I, I loved her sense of humor and the way she was very daring, in, in my opinion, and I, it gave me a little more chutzpah, a little more courage to blast out of things. <laughs> And those are the best words I could come up with, but I really, uh, I, I have had much admiration for her work. Mm. Um, you've done a lot of travels, and a lot of it's been a, a spiritual search, hasn't it? In fact, on this website, you have a picture of you with a camel. That's, a, what I guess, emblematic um, <laughs> of, of a lot of your travels. Uh, the the title, the title essay is called uh, The Precarious Walk Away from Mormonism, subtitle of the essay all the time with a stitch in my side. Um, tell me a little bit about that, what um, your search for spirituality, I guess, maybe beyond your Mormon roots. Well, um, like I say, I was raised very religiously and very much in uh, very tight to the whole religion, and um, there are many, many good things about it. I, I have a great affection for it. And um, I came to the point where it was like, there are a whole lot more people in the world, and there are a whole lot more religions, and I want to know what those are all about. I don't want to just accept one thing as the only way to think about things. And so uh, for 20 years, I didn't go to ch- uh my original church at all. I went to all kinds of different churches and went and had a lot of different experiences, and I loved that. I loved seeing people worship and people um, trying to find that connection with uh, something greater than themselves, and uh, I saw it everywhere. I saw, although when I was in Tibet, I have to say, I tried to talk to some Buddhist monks, but there were Chinese people there as well, and the Buddhist monks were afraid to speak out, as they might have otherwise, because they would be censored. Mm. You, so, uh, anyway. Well, yeah, yeah. you I'm, went to, to Tibet, uh, you you talked with, I think, uh, went to Peru, right? Talked to some shamans there as well? I'm sorry, I didn't uh, hear that. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, to Peru, I think, as well. 
um, uh, all over. Uh, tell me about your you, you went to uh, you went to a Baptist church. Yes, and I love that. Um, I actually went to quite a few Baptist churches, and um, I was teaching one semester at the University of Missouri, and there was a uh, Second Baptist Church, I believe it was called, and it was all black. And uh, I would go to that faithfully every Sunday because I loved the choir, and I loved the way that preachers would preach their sermons, and it just stirred something in me. Uh, and I also I have an essay in the book called Sweetgrass, and it's about my visit to a little tiny uh, Second Baptist Church in South Carolina, I believe, and how uh, affecting that was, how, how much that, you know, reached my very deepest parts of me. So um, I, I have a lot of respect and admiration and feel connected to, the, to people who are engaged in, in a worshipful state, whatever that might be. What was it about the the Baptist worship? It's contrasting. I'm sorry, I'm, uh, uh, I li- I'm, oh, I'm can't sorry. hear you very well. Oh, can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear okay. you now. Okay. Uh, what is it about the the Baptist worship, for for example, contrasting to the the worship you uh, grew up in? Well, the, what I did see was a lot more of a demonstrative spirit from the preacher. He would really get in, and you could almost, as I'm a musician, and I could almost hear. The rise of the the speech to the pinnacle, and then the fall afterward, the denouement. And uh, I just thought I, I loved getting all worked up like that, <laughs> or watching it happen too. And uh, and I loved the music because the people who sang and the people who marched down the aisles in their uh, robes, their beautiful gold silk robes, whatever they were. But they, yeah, it's like something in it, something in them really spoke to me. Something about them really caring and really hoping that there was a connection, and believing there was a great connection to something greater than ourselves. Mm. Uh, so uh, in some of these searches, there, there's, uh, you're attracted to movement, right? Dance, um, you know, rhythm uh, is, a, is a way of worship, or a method, I guess. Well, definitely, and even in the Baptist churches, or the, I guess I would have to call them Baptist, but I... Um, seems like I went to others as well, but there was a rhythm to their lectures or their sermons, and uh, I don't know, I, I guess I really respond to things that seem to be larger than, than what we ordinarily operate in, so mm. the pattern's there. Uh, I guess the, the there's still a pole there, a tug from the religion you grew up in. You, you write about a trip to a cannery. What if you tell me about that? Oh, I went to a cannery with a friend of mine who uh, um, was the daughter of a very high person in the Mormon church, and I always respected that about her, and she was a really good person. And we went to the cannery together, and uh, uh, I loved working in concert with other people and just being a part of the whole thing. And uh, so what I love about my religion I grew up in was the connectedness and the community and, and people who are doing things together. And um, I really admire the Mormons for all of their effort that they're making uh, around the country when there are disasters and big problems. They're the, one of the first ones to be there. So that was a salute to that. Mm. 
Uh, you studied uh, piano performance. In fact, you yes, cons- considered that as a, as a career for a while. What? Uh, um, tell me a little bit about, about that. Um, I guess you you obviously must have practiced piano much more than I did growing <laughs> growing up. <laughs> I was I was one of those kids where you know I had a little bit of interest, but I didn't stick with it. You, you were pretty good. Well, I I always liked to to practice, so uh, that was the difference. And I when I taught piano, I had a lot of students who wouldn't practice, and it was like. I'd talk to their mothers and say, please, you know, they don't want to take lessons. <laughs> don't make me suffer. <laughs> don't make them suffer. But anyway, um, yeah, I was uh, really enjoyed playing the piano, and I wanted to be a concert pianist at one time. And then I got, um, and I graduated with a music performance degree in piano. And um, I gave it, I, I don't know whether to call them recitals. They weren't concerts. I don't know the difference between a recital and a concert. But um, anyway, I performed some very beautiful and difficult music. And then I had children, and it was like, wait a minute, I can't do all of this. And to be a concert artist requires five or six hours a day, and I, that's, I didn't have that time to give, and I didn't want to give that much. So at that time, I decided I would write instead and so I, I got up at like four in the morning. I'd write for a couple hours before my children would get up. So, but I always loved music, and uh, and I accompanied thousands of people, literally thousands. <laughs> so. Wow! Yeah, um, both are creative outlets, right? Are there similarities? I'm talking about uh, you know p- piano, music, and and uh, writing. There definitely are similarities, and uh, some people say it's not have said to me is that it's not fair you're good at a lot of things and I said well I really think they're all connected so um, anyway um, yeah I think there's a much of a uh, connection between writing because you're trying to and in my my piano playing I'll go back to that I always tried to really speak what the music what the composer wanted to say and um, I was very dedicated to that and I think uh, as I wrote, I wanted to say how I felt about everything. And and I finally came to the conclusion that people can't argue with you about your own experience if you try to create a fact and say this is how this is that, this way or that, then people can argue with you. But it's like there, you, if you talk about your own experience, you get to be the final arbiter of that. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting thing, isn't it? <laughs> uh, people try to argue about your experience, but uh, but you right. are the final arbiter. Uh, you 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 write here that um, you hear music in the sounds of the desert. Tell me about that. Well, I hear music a lot. Um, I mean, I hear patterns and all that kind of stuff. But the as I heard music, and you'd wake up in the morning in the desert, and the sun would be coming over the mountain, and it just seemed bigger than all of that and uh, I, I just remember the sunrise on the desert and the dark gray turning, turning to light and uh, just feeling like it was a sonata or a symphony or something I know that sounds goofy but uh, that's how I responded to all the sounds around me as if they were part of some major music being made you also write that uh, you hear music in the cadence of people's speech and um, that's one of the things I enjoyed when I was traveling was the different way people spoke. And you'd hear foreign language, and us a lot of times can't understand what people are saying. But you could hear 
their singing, their, well, I call it singing or the way they would talk. And so you'd know what was going on, really. You might not understand all the words, but so it's like having a place to connect that's, that's larger than words. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment with Phyllis Barber. The uh, The book is The Precarious Walk, Essays from Sand and Sky. It's out from Tory House Press. More following this. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with the writer Phyllis Barber. Uh, her latest book is The Precarious Walk, Essays from Sand and Sky. It's out from uh, Tory House Press. And uh, they're having a couple of uh, book launch events. You can uh, go and uh, hear Phyllis Barber interact with her uh, tomorrow evening at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, 6 p.m. So Tuesday evening, 6 p.m., King's English Bookshop, Salt Lake City. Then Thursday, June 2nd, 7.30 p.m., the Book Bungalow in uh, St. George. Uh, So Phyllis Barber, I want to have you read uh, another passage here. This is... uh, Page 59, page 59. This is just section 11 from your essay, Ode to the Mojave. Um, So so, uh, before we get there, maybe we could set this up. This is, you're talking about St. Thomas. This is a town that was drowned by Lake Mead when, when the dam was built, right? Right. Uh, And so you, um, you, you drive out to a certain point, then you get on your bike and a bike into the is it Lake Mead, I'm not sure, uh, monument or park or recreation area? The remains. The, okay. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, timing is important here because Lake Mead has receded enough that uh, at least part of uh, St. Thomas is now exposed again after, I guess, probably decades. Uh, the, all of it is exposed. Oh, well, all of it, yes. <laughs> yes. It's really, the lake has really gone down. Uh, so, yeah, I'll maybe have you uh, read this. Okay, the whole 11? 11, yes. Okay, the remains of St. Thomas have brought me to breathe the clear desert air once again and to be wary of holes where scaly creatures watch for intruders. This is my land, this sand, these rocks, these weeds that dry up and tumble, even though it is called a land best left to itself. I could have been a native woman with red paint smeared across my cheeks who understands the barren, never-ending hills, and that there are others, other natives, other tribes, that want what I have coaxed from the land when need is stark. I could have been a pioneer woman building an adobe house, birthing and burying. I was a child splashing in the waters of Lake Mead with my father standing close by. I am a woman wondering about the naming of names and the the busyness of human effort to subdue the earth and engineer it into something habitable. Call me whatever you want. I don't need a name. Names are useful for a while, the ones found on dried scraps of paper, on pages in books, in libraries and museums, and on microfiche, in between floods and sandstorms. The wind will blow. It will tear paper that the sun has yellowed and curled at the edges. The rain will fall. Water will blur the ink. Whatever names we call ourselves and those who came before us, they remind us what has been here, what preceded us. Names. Yes, names. Transient, flying through the sky, blowing in the dust. Names. My real father, mother, lover is the wind, the sun, the smell of water gathering in clouds, the curtains of rain. 
I am a creature made of lizard skins, sagebrush, horsetail grass, and rainwashed sand. Once in a while I flash brilliance like heat lightning or the pink prickly pear blossom, but mostly I'm subtle like the desert and this dust, my land, which can never, ever be owned. I have been here before. I am here now. I will leave again following the way of the desert. Beautiful. Uh, you say, I'm a creature made of lizard skin, sagebrush, horsetail grass, and rainwashed sand. That's, uh, that's a beautiful phrase. Um, you say earlier in this, uh, in this essay, um, you point out uh, the only reason you're able to, um, to visit uh, you know, this, this town now exposed um, is that the water has receded. You, you write, they created a colossal lake. But now, even though the dam will probably last into infinity, what about the water? Uh, uh, it's certainly facing us right now. Uh, that both Lake Mead and Lake Powell are getting, you know, much less than they once were. Much, much, much less. Hmm. To the fact that there is a wonderment if uh, Lake Powell will even be there. Uh, yeah, it's it's certainly true. Um I want to talk a little bit. We talked about desert, of course. Um, and you write a lot about desert uh, in the book. Are there other places? I'm losing you oh, again. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me now? I can't hear you. Oh, can you hear me? Looks uh, like we're. I'm sorry, I can't hear. Okay. Uh, looks there like we. Go. we... Oh, can you hear me? Okay, great. Um, I'm wondering about the, the the cities and the the fact maybe the interaction you've had with you know you on those cities the cities on you in terms of place so you know Salt Lake City Park City or you are now you've lived in Colorado I live in Park City Utah now yeah yeah you live in Park City now but you've lived in uh, you know Salt Lake Colorado etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, what, what marks of those places left on you do you think. Well, I was really glad to live in Colorado for a while because it. I, I think Utah has a very set culture. I, I don't think it's quite as much as it used to be, but it's it's like being in other cultures and being able to breathe more freely. So um, I especially loved my time in Minnesota, which was about a year and a half, and it was like these people uh, have their own culture. And it's different from mine, and they think about things differently. And I, I love that exposure. We talked earlier in the program about your mom and dad, right? Uh, are, bo- are both of them gone now? Yes. But I wonder about that. The, the, we talked about the effect that they, uh, we talked about them, right? I wonder if you talk a little bit about the effect that they had on you. I guess, you know, obviously, as, as with all of us, our our mother and father have a have a big effect, and there's a through line there. You know, um, what do you think from each of them has has affected you? Well, my mother was very straight laced and very uh, sure of everything, and she uh, very much believed in Mormonism, and she she would have no other way with any of us. My father had a more uh, I hate to say interesting, but a more uh, mind that would consider more options. And um, I tended to side with that because I like the idea of a bigger place and, and not something tied down so tightly. So uh, those that influence was great with my mother and my father. And I, and I have respect for both of them and for both of what they had to teach me and to give me. And I've, 
I've come to think I had really good parents, and I'm glad for the kind of uh, the difference between them. Uh, of course, we talked about Las Vegas. Um, I don't know if you go back or have been back recently. Uh, what do you think about modern Las Vegas contrasted to the you know early Las Vegas that you lived in? Well, uh, the modern Las Vegas is so huge and so spread out. I mean, I, I get lost when I go there now, and uh, I want to go to the old Las Vegas uh, writer's block. I'm giving it is a bookstore there. I'm giving a reading there on June 3rd. But um, it's close to the old Las Vegas High School, and that's in the very middle of, of the city, very much of the downtown. And um, that's where I want to be. That's I want to be with those familiar places. But so much of Las Vegas is stretched out everywhere now. In Henderson and Las Vegas, there's hardly a barrier, and there used to be quite quite a few miles between. So... Um, it's it. It's. I don't even. In a way, I don't like to go back there now because it's so different. And that's. Uh, I mean, it. And gam, gambling is huge there, and showgirls and all that kind. Of, it's a different mentality. And uh, I remember wanting to buy into all of it when I was in high school, and it was like I needed to buy into all of it. But now I see it as a culture, as a way of one way of life. I want to talk a bit about uh, your journey as a writer and maybe advice you would give to, to writers. You, I guess you started out, uh, you got a chance to write for Utah Holiday Magazine in, in Salt Lake. That's right. one of your early gigs, right? Mm-hmm. Did you think then that you'd uh, be able to move from that to writing books, writing essays and collections and, and such? Well, I remember I was writing essays mostly for Utah Holiday, and I love to write essays. And uh, hence this collection. uh, I've written it over a period of 25 years, and I've chosen the essays I liked best. But um, when I was writing for Utah Holiday, I would take different subjects, and like uh, Confessions of a Snowplow Queen uh, was one of them, and uh, Raising a Rock and Roll Band was another. I can't remember all of them now. (laughs) It's so long ago. but I, I did hone my craft, and Paul Swenson was a wonderful editor at Utah Holiday, and um, he gave me suggestions, and and then I decided to go and study at the University of Utah, study writing and uh, fiction writing. So that's how that all got started, and I started writing short stories, which sounded more autobiographical than uh, fictional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm suspicious of of how uh, the author is influenced by his or her life. Yeah, inevitable, I guess, right? Um, inevitable. Yeah. Um, what advice do you give to, to young writers? I mean, you teach, I think you've, you've taught writing. What, what advice do you give? Uh, we're, well, right now I teach for Osher, but I've, I've taught for a lot of years, and I taught at Vermont College of Fine Arts, and uh, um, I teach for Osher, and I've taught some workshops in Park City and... Um, I always try to tell people, say, please, write what, just write. Don't try to be good, and don't try to be fantastic, and just write. Just tell your story and tell the things that you have to say that nobody else knows about, because if you don't tell about your story, nobody else will. And so um, I, I really enjoy encouraging people to tell their own story. 
Well, just a couple of minutes left. I want to read this sentence, have you react to it? This is Phyllis Barber. I value this life so much more since I've gotten gotten older and have come to a place of gratitude for my own particular journey. It's a sacred thing. And do you want me to comment yeah, on that? Yeah, yes. Well, I, I mean, I do. I, I remember when I was younger really wanting to be somebody else or another person who seemed more successful and all that. And um, over the years, I've come to really appreciate who I am and what I have to give and what I have to offer. And um, so I don't know if it's just maturation or, or writing or whatever has caused that change, but... I, I feel very happy to be myself and to tell my own stories. And I remember at one time somebody criticized me for always talking about myself. And I, th- I thought, well, I mean, I don't just, I've written other things that aren't about me quite a bit, quite a few things, actually. So, but um, telling one's own story still fascinates me because you tell one element of the story and then you realize that's not all of it, all of it. So it's it's a kind of an introduction to a much larger palette. Well, the book is uh, The Precarious Walk. The subtitle is Essays from Sand and Sky, and it's out from uh, Tory House uh, Press. And uh, a couple of events uh, coming up. Um, Tuesday, tomorrow, 6 p.m. at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. You can interact with Phyllis Barber. And then uh, Thursday, June 2nd, 7.30 p.m., the book Bungalow in uh, St. George. Phyllis Barber, you said there's uh, there's another event on June 3rd, I think. Yes, that'll be in Las Vegas at the Writer's Block, and that's at 7 o'clock. Yeah, so another opportunity as well. Uh, well, the book is out and available from uh, Tory House Press. Uh, Phyllis Barber, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah.